there was nothing that I would have changed about that or nothing that I think was wrong with that. It just, it felt like school. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton. And you just heard the voice of Molly Zuccat, a senior at High Tech High in San Diego. We're doing something new in this episode. To explain, we need to go back to September 2020 when we released a guest episode from the podcast This Teenage Life about remote learning. It's season two, episode four. Check it out if you haven't heard it already. It's a classic. And Molly Josephs, the teacher who works on This Teenage Life, said this one thing that I couldn't shake. I obviously am a teacher. I love teaching. But the vibe of This Teenage Life feels a bit different. I know exactly what Molly means, but I don't feel great about it. Because if I have a single basic belief about public education, it's that it should be inclusive. Kids shouldn't be segregated by perceived academic ability or by anything else, including self-selection. Because what kids choose, not to mention what they're encouraged to choose by adults, is influenced by their gender, their race, their social class, a bunch of factors that should not determine the quality of a child's education. This principle of inclusion is at the heart of High Tech High, and it's one of the main reasons I moved from London to San Diego to work here. But one of the big things that makes the vibe of this teenage life different from class is precisely that it's a self-selected group. And I've experienced this difference myself, both as a student and as a teacher. Self-selected groups just feel different, and let's call it what it is, they often feel better. To some extent, this doesn't matter. The ideal of public education is for classrooms to be diverse, inclusive spaces that include both students who love the class and students who would rather be anywhere else. If achieving that goal means losing a certain vibe, it's still worth it. But it just doesn't sit right with me for school to be relegated to this category of not quite as good as self-selected extracurricular groups. I couldn't shake this feeling, so I emailed Molly about it, and then I invited the people I most wanted to learn from onto the podcast to talk it out. So today's episode features Molly Josephs, of course. She teaches at the Dalton School in New York, in addition to creating this teenage life. It also features Molly Zucat and Olivia Ho, high school students who co-founded this teenage life, and who've been students in the high-tech high system since they were in elementary school. And Rodrigo Arancibia, co-director of the Carpe College Access Network at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, and before that, an after-school program leader, teacher, and district coordinator. But the first person you'll hear from is Sarah Fine, who wrote In Search of Deeper Learning with Jal Mehta, and now runs the San Diego Teacher Residency. And I started the conversation by asking Sarah the obvious question, given the title of her book. So where did you guys find Deeper Learning when you went in search for it? Well, we found it in really surprising places, Alec. We started our journey looking mainly in the sort of core academic courses of study at a whole bunch of very high profile, allegedly really awesome high schools around the U.S., public high schools. And we found in pockets some really amazing stuff happening in academic courses. But much more often, um, we would ask kids, like we would hang out in the cafeteria during lunch, and we would ask them, like, when in your day does time fly by? When in your day do you do things that you bring home with you willingly, that you talk about beyond that particular class or activity? And inevitably, they would tell us about their elective courses or about their extracurricular activities. We ended up calling it like the periphery of school. So the kinds of spaces and activities at schools that often fly under the radar from the perspective of policymakers and people who talk about schools. So we got very interested in like what was different about those spaces and why they were more promising for producing deeper learning for kids than so many academic courses were. So that sounds like exactly the opposite of what was intended was happening. Can you say more about that? Just that one's intention is that deep learning happens in academic courses and electives make it palatable and give you sort of 
exciting things to pursue. But broadly speaking, if you're imagining the kind of vision of American public schooling, you're sort of thinking like everybody learns deeply about history and some people are going to play in band and that's cool, but we're not really expecting that that's like a core part of being a citizen as an adult. Right. So yeah, we saw kind of like the mirror image of what you might hope for. Although the question we ended up asking was how can the academic core learn from those spaces and or like how can we totally blow up the organization of our schools so that more of those types of activities sit at the center of what happens and and both of those questions i think are relevant like i don't i don't think it's an either or there awesome the other thing that inspired this bring you guys together for this conversation is molly josephs you were talking about how you really love your podcast group it's fair to say that is true what is it about that group that makes it so special? I think there are a few factors involved in those spaces. One is consent, like young people are choosing to be there. Two is like usually the thing that you're making is genuinely authentic. Like it's one thing to make a thing for an exhibition. It's another thing to make something for an audience that you think is outside in the world. So like, yes, I think exhibition is extremely powerful, but making a film for an adult film festival could also be potentially more powerful because it's not just people in your school communities who are seeing it. It's people out in the world. Anyway, that's all to say that I think those types of qualities are what make a lot of extracurricular spaces really powerful. In terms of the podcast, I think what makes it special is the feeling that the social contract between me, the adult, and the young people involved is very much like we are on a team. So I am not their teacher. I'm much more of like a a facilitator or like someone who holds the space and helps to make things happen instead of being like an authority figure. And then also I think that like, because we don't have this idea of turning over every year, we've had continuity and we've developed relationships over now almost two years um, that have allowed us to like really connect with each other and build a real community. Olivia and Molly, what am I completely messing up and leaving out? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I was going to mention like what you said about, first of all, the social contract between you, the adult and the rest of us who are high school students. It feels definitely like a partnership or a a team and a community. And not to say that I haven't had that with other teachers, because I feel like I definitely had. But I think the difference here is that in other settings, it'll be like, you know, the teacher comes up with this project and then maybe you're working super closely and you develop a great relationship with them and that's great. But this, it feels like if Molly Joseph proposes an idea, I feel like I have the freedom to say, actually, I don't know that I love that. Here's this idea. Let's talk and work towards something that we're both excited about because we both have equal stake in what we're working on. Yeah. And I think like to go along with that idea, a lot of what is very freeing to me about this teenage life is that we really are choosing what we want to do. And so it's never a question of like, oh gosh, this is yet another responsibility that I have heaped on my plate. It really feels like something that I'm excited about and that I can look forward to. And I think that feeling is mutual among everyone who participates, which I think is is really special, especially when contrasted with a lot of the ways that your requirements for school make you feel as though you're just doing the work to do the work. Another reason that it feels special is because it does feel like a real world thing. Like we're publishing these episodes across various streaming platforms and all that kind of stuff. It feels bigger than, I mean, definitely bigger than a school assignment, but it also feels definitely bigger than like a traditional hobby. It definitely, it feels like something significant. 
Yeah, it's interesting because we we started out like really not knowing what we were doing, which I think was refreshing because it was exciting to learn new things alongside other people. Molly Zuket and Olivia, I want to ask, you guys have been at a project-based school for a very long time. Have you had a project during school hours that had these qualities that you're talking about in this teenage life? There have definitely been projects that I have been equally as passionate about and equally as excited about. But I would say that I think within the framework of like being at High Tech High, a lot of what we did didn't have the same sort of feeling of true like agency and and self-drivenness. Because, you know, a lot of times it makes sense, like your teachers come up with the project and then it's your job to make it into what it is, which is you're already given a lot of agency in that. But I think with this teenage life, because it is really, I would say, like detached from any sort of like notion of what it should be. It is just what it is, meaning that we do the things that we want to do and we're able to meld it into what we are. So I'd say that there are projects and different things that I've done that have similar qualities, but nothing really has the same feeling. But I'd be curious to know what Molly thinks, because I may be missing a project or two. Yeah, I was basically going to say the same thing. I don't know that I even really have like specific projects in mind, but I think that my favorite projects or the ones that I've felt the most engaged in have definitely been ones that involve the like highest amount of freedom given by the teachers which is in some senses what this teenage life is but also they're like it feels sort of uncomparable because this teenage life I feel like I have I mean control isn't the right word because I I don't control this teenage life but I have full freedom in this teenage life in a way that I have never really felt in school before in that like you know teacher student class dynamic I don't think it's comparable in some ways because we're not, we don't have to ascribe to any of the structures of school because we're not a school. And so that's really lucky. So anyway, thing one to summarize that I want to say is like, I think it's an unfair comparison because we don't have any of the laws of physics that govern school. So that's thing one. Exactly. But thing two is my question to you, Mal. What do you think makes it different? Well, I mean, just as a first thing, I don't think it has anything to do with grading. Like, obviously, since we're not a school, if you were grading us, that would, I mean, obviously feel very weird. But yeah, I don't know. Olivia, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was just thinking about how a lot of times, like Molly was saying, the requirements of school can take away this feeling of like you as an adult and as an individual, because it's like, you have to be here at this time, and then you have to go to class in five minutes. Can you figure that out? Do you know what time it is? And I think part of what makes this change life feel very different and like very distinct from school is that, like, yeah, we don't have a specific time we need to be there. I mean, like, we have meetings that we schedule, but it's not like, I don't know. I mean, we're not like graded on attendance, and there's no real requirements of us which is also different from other extracurricular activities where you will be maybe not graded on your attendance, but that will impact your performance in that thing. But I kind of agree. I don't, I don't know how, how comparable it is to school, considering that it just has a very distinct and different format. Uh, hey, y'all, this is Rodrigo. Just had a quick question from the students. Like, how big of a role does relationship play in that? Because if I'm looking at how you participated in any other project versus how you're participating in this work. 
it sounds to me like there's definitely a, a strong relationship that you've built with Molly. How important is that to the work and being able to have that license? Yeah, I was actually freedom? just about to bring that up. I think, first of all, what's, I mean, definitely been super huge is all of the students' relationship with Molly Josephs. But also one thing that's important to note, even if maybe it obviously doesn't apply to many other extracurricular activities, when we started or when Olivia and Molly started this teenage life, it basically just became what sort of already was our friend group or maybe a slightly extended version of our friend group, just, you know, hanging out and talking, which was super important because we had already sort of established that like comfortability with each other. Like it wasn't like some super clicky, like close knit thing. Like there, there was definitely new people coming in and out. And now we've sort of developed this like core group of people that are really passionate about the project. Um, but I think relationships are huge, especially when you're creating something like our podcast that's very personal and requires like a high degree of trust within the group. I think that's definitely made a huge difference. And with our relationship with Molly, like we've sort of talked about it, it just totally feels like a team or a, a partnership. Like it doesn't feel at all like there's any sort of hierarchy to it. And Sarah, is that consistent with what you guys have seen across the board in terms of the research or what, what, what similarities are, are you seeing with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a huge amount of research well beyond ours suggests what a lot of us, I think, know intuitively, which is relationships are, are the key, like the thing without which none of this can happen. And the stronger the relationship networks among students and between students and, and teachers, the sort of higher the ceiling is for the quality of the work that can get produced, for sure. I was going to add, though, um, one of the things that Jal and I thought a lot about when we were trying to make sense of the patterns we'd seen is that in a lot of the sort of peripheral spaces, assessment just took on a completely different quality, right? So, you know, on the one hand, learning happens via process. And so, you know, even if you're producing something that isn't compelling to a broader audience, kids might learn something in the process and it could be meaningful to them. But we also noticed that a lot of the places it seemed like kids were experiencing really powerful learning, they were producing something where the sort of assessment was well beyond anybody in the room, right? So like it wasn't the teacher really doing the assessing um, or the, the coach or the facilitator. It was like the standards of the field. Like you're producing a thing that exists in the world that professional people do and the standards of the field become the thing against which your artifact is held. So like podcasting is a thing. And when you put a podcast out in the world that you're producing for a public audience, like there's the question of how many people listen to it, how many people engage with it, to what extent does this podcast have some of the qualities that characterize the most compelling work at the highest level of work in the field. Same thing with, for example, like a school play or a newspaper. And so that's just fundamentally different from what happens in so many classrooms, right? Where it's sort of unclear what the set of standards are that are like, what is the alignment between what you're doing in math class in 11th grade and like the standards of mathematical knowledge in the field. Like there often isn't a clear relationship, at least it's not clear to students and often not to teachers. So it does strike me that the sort of this teenage life has some of that where what you're producing, it's not really about how any of you all assess the work. It's really about like the impact the world makes in the world. Uh, and that that is kind of so far beyond test focus, grade focus paradigm that it just changes the game. What that makes me think of, Sarah, is after school's role in a lot of the service learning that we do. Mm -hmm. A lot of our service learning, whether it's, you know, 
some sort of community-based work or reaching out to the community, whatever that is, like that's our authentic audience. That's who we're trying to, to support and serve. And so the assessment component isn't necessarily as rigid as it would be in the school day, but it's still very, very much alive and in the real world. And I'm sure, I'm sure Molly and, and Olivia, whether it's making a podcast or making a documentary, that's a big thing. That's, that's, that's not like it's a little, little, a little task. You know what I mean? I think something that's really interesting here that's both like an unfair comparison, but I think one that's like really interesting to think with is like, this is unrelated, but tangentially related, is that Sarah, like the way that you talk about like what deeper learning is, to me, what's so beautiful about it is that it doesn't think with the grammar of school first. It like starts with thinking like what's in the world and how does it work and like And why does it work, if that makes sense? And I think that when you start a band or if you start a restaurant, you're not like, is this better than school? Right? Like, it's it's like people are obviously learning things and making things and doing things, but there's no comparison to school. And I think that's something that's interesting is like, oftentimes when we make things with young people, we compare it to school. And it's interesting because we associate young people with school, but it's not... It's, it's an interesting thing to think with, like, what if we thought with restaurants and bakeries and art studios instead of with school? And I think that's where, like, the comparison becomes also unfair. Again, I just want to, like, emphasize that we have none of the constraints of school. Like, no one's forced to be there. We're, I don't know. We just don't have to deal with anything like that. And I think, Alec, like, you brought up in your email self-selection. And I think it's a really interesting question to ask, like, how do you think about creating these kind of spaces where not everyone in the space is there by choice or is there consensually? And I think my answer is like oddly, is elliptical the word? Like oddly, like a snake eating its tail. It's like, I think the more and more that places or contexts are consensual, where kids are choosing what they're doing, the more divergence that's allowed, the more that you'll end up seeing high quality work or high quality experiences. I want to kind of get to the thing that I find very disquieting about all of this, which is that fundamentally we are not talking about a desegregationist idea. We're talking about the power of self-segregation. And I don't mean that racially. I don't mean that economically, although that does tend to happen as well. But it concerns me that it seems like something special happens when students self-select because we talked about the kind of the various regulations of school and a lot of those are bad and a lot of those are poorly thought out. But the one thing that's kind of irreducible is that public school is supposed to provide an education of value to every single student, whether they want to be there or not, whether they come with a basic set of skills or not. And I think one of the things about this teenage life is if a kid came to this teenage life and they were like, you know what? I don't really like podcasting. I'm not into this. You wouldn't be like, oh, well, you have to come back next week. But if someone was like, I'm not into reading, you know, I'm not into reading. I don't really like this. You wouldn't be like, oh, it doesn't sound like English is for you. And so I kind of wonder, like, is the reality just, yeah, public school is great, but there's a thing, the really great thing you aren't going to have, but we can probably give you the next best thing. Like, is that the best we can hope for? Or is is there a way of kind of bringing this magic into something that is designed to be for everyone, whether they want it or not? 
this ends up being like a tension and in a lot of conversations in ways that are really interesting. But I, I think the place where there isn't a tension is like, I feel like oftentimes the way that it's treated is like reading is like you have to eat your vegetables. But actually, I think like if you find out what a young person cares about and you see their magic and you help matchmake them to a medium they really care about, if you have something as broad as storytelling, then like I don't think it has to end up with self-segregation. Like you could end up potentially with like kids who have shared interests doing stories on things that they care about. Sure, there might be some segregation there, but I don't think it means that there, it results in only certain people get certain things, which I feel like is often the argument about like interest-based learning is that it's like not equitable because and not everyone will get the same thing. But I think like that argument ends up being false if you actually start with the individual and think less in terms of information transmission and content transmission and more think in terms of like, okay, you are a human. The thing that we've created that you're going to be exploring is broad enough that whatever tastes, interests, and identities you bring to the table, we are going to figure out how to use this medium in a way that's expressive of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Alec, I think that is the question and I, I, would, um, I would hate to leave any any potential audience thinking that like I or any of us are are anti-school I mean I think the idea of creating a public via public education that is as integrated as we can make it is inherently valuable and I actually so the reason that Joel and I are always asking the question like how can the core learn from the periphery and like bring in the elements that make the periphery powerful within a more constrained space that has certain goals that might not be attached in the periphery I think that is the question I don't think I'm ready to blow it all up, but I, I do think that the strongest classroom spaces, even if they are compulsory, even if kids have to be there, I think that if they can look to some of those qualities that Molly and Rodrigo and others were describing, like how do we embed choice, real choice within some kind of common strand? How do we look to an authentic audience or an authentic client so that students are actually creating something that is less fake than the fake things we usually create inside of school? How do we look to the standards of the field to kind of determine the quality of the work that we're doing? Um, how do we make sure that there are opportunities for students to create something that's more than the sum of the parts? Like, I, I think part of the problem of sort of normalized school is that the thing we're trying to produce is individual achievement. We're not organizing our school to produce good for the community or for society or, or for right for anything. But we're, what we're interested in, the way that we measure and the way that we incentivize our schools is a kind of person by person basis, right? And then we get into that whole scramble for kind of badging and meritocracy and who's on top and so on. Whereas a lot of the spaces outside of school and something like this teenage life, kids are creating something that they could not create on their own. Like people, there's real differentiated rules. There's real interdependence. Like the thing that you create in the end could not have been created by any one or two kids, ideally. Um, and so if we can kind of reorganize our classrooms to do that and still embed a kind of through line that allows kids to develop the skills that we've agreed we think they need to develop. I think there's real possibilities there. And, and maybe there is a ceiling because school is a kind of manufactured environment in a way that other places are not. And that's never going to go entirely away. But I think there's, we are very far from like bumping up against the limits of what <laughs> core academics and schools could be. Sarah, that was so beautifully said. And Olivia and Molly, just to kind of follow up on that, what can your academic during the day teachers learn from this teenage life? What do you want to tell them about? 
Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing is, uh, I think like Sarah was saying, really uh, integrating choice into what you're doing, even while, you know, everyone has to be there. Um, And there's very little choice in that sense. But even in, you know, the smallest decisions, I've noticed that, you know, I've had teachers who consult students when they are curious about like when something should be due and things like that I think go a long way towards making a culture that is more based around like mutual benefit and sort of like collaboration and benefit of the group as opposed to the individual so I think that's something that I that I was thinking about. Yeah I definitely agree with that and I also think one thing that makes a difference between traditional like school environments versus this teenage life is that this teenage life is a group of in a lot of senses very like similar people or like-minded people and so I think one thing that's really important for teachers to understand and I mean I think this sort of goes along with what Olivia was saying about choice but just that every student in their class is like very different so it's going to require like a lot of individual connection and I mean, individual choice, really, just allowing the students to try to, you know, craft their experience, even if it is really different from someone else's in the class or like what someone else wants to do in the class. That's fine if they're both like learning a lot from it, you know. Mal, how would you say, though, like given that people are so different and given that like diversity is such a like beautiful and important thing, how would you say that like you create a culture where people form relationships across difference? Yeah, that's interesting. And obviously, like really important. Also, just like in school in general, like if you have, like, I think it wouldn't necessarily be successful to have a class of 30 different people working on 30 completely different things like that doesn't totally make sense to me as like a school environment. So I think one thing that's important and I mean, I, to be honest, I don't even know if this is really true or if I really believe this, but I, I think structure is important to like a certain degree. Like I think a teacher with a clear idea of like, I don't know, like these are the guidelines. This is generally what I think, but whatever you need, whatever you want, you can do within that. And like Olivia said, like small choices along the, along the way would help. And I mean, I also, I think at the end of the day, if the students are happy about what they're working on and if they're excited then like that'll in itself promote them to talk with each other about what they're working on because they'll be excited you know like if you were bummed out about a project and like didn't feel like you were doing good work that would never prompt you to go up to someone and be like hey look what I did like you only do that if you're excited about something so I think that's how it would sort of help promote connection. I'm so glad Molly you shared like a structure because that's so consistent with like really, really high quality programs that we've seen across the nation. It's not just about sitting with students and just, we're just hanging out. Like it's no, we're not rolling the balls out. We're like, there, we have like, there are thoughtful structures in terms of like, yes, we are going to achieve this goal or we meet Tuesdays and Tuesdays and Thursdays or Mondays and Wednesdays. And on Fridays we do something like when we start to think about relationships or creating culture, like there is a, a misnomer that, yeah, it just means free for all or just means like just hanging out or whatever. Like that's completely the opposite of how like really, really strong relationships are built. Um, and especially in this out of school time space, some of the students that we work with 
typically don't have a lot of structure in their lives or in their in their in in in, the, in their circumstances. So having the structure of being able to go to school and hang out and then be able to stay with an adult who cares about you, right, and who who you know is going to be there after school at the same time or, or online in the same space. Like there's a certain comfort to that. And students then be are able to open up and say, hey, like I trust this person because they're there for me. And I think that's a, that's a huge point about about that um, that structure. So thank you so much, Molly, for bringing that up. Yeah, definitely. And I, I totally agree with what you said. And, it, and it's just interesting that uh, like a common misconception, I think with both students and teachers is like a, a class focused on like individual learning means like free for all, do whatever you want. But really that's obviously not the case as we've seen throughout like multiple projects and, and classes and stuff. Yeah. And that circles back to Sarah's point about like, if you're making something that's in the world, the standard of quality is set by the parameters of the world. So like if you're putting on a stage production, if your audience is going to think it's cool, you have to do certain things to make it cool. Um, and doing that requires a lot of work. And I, I think this ends up being a reinforcing loop where it's like the relationships form and you're doing something real. And when you're doing something real, you're making something that's a product or a project that's truly out there in the world. And I think that helps create a, a relationship. The only danger there, and I, of course, I'm like doubling back on something I, I myself was saying, but you know, process matters a lot. Like if you're coaching a soccer team uh, and your soccer team is on a losing streak, it does not mean there hasn't been meaningful progress and development with consequential learning that's happened for the players in the process of preparing for those games. So similarly, like in project-based learning, you know, the danger is always that we, we get overly focused on the product to the detriment of the process and to the detriment of the learning that might happen along the way at different rates. It might look and sound different for different kids. And so I'm always thinking in PBL, like, how do we, on the one hand, think really hard about truly authentic products that align to the standards of the field and so on and have real audiences, and also not so overly weight that, that we forget about the learning that happens along the way, which is also really important. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Sarah, I'm wondering, like, in schools, what do you think of as the equivalent of the soccer game? Uh, well, in traditional schools, unfortunately, it's like the test or the essay, which is clearly. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was going to say testing. Yeah, for sure. Test. I'm all testing is the soccer game because it's just. Because it's so fun. Because it's so much fun, right? Exactly. You just get into the flow of it. No, I mean, I think in, in a project-based school where, or even not, where kids are working toward uh, something more authentic, it might be a production um, or an exhibition or the debut of the play you've created as a class or the screening of the movies or podcasts or, or whatever, right? So the, the game time where all the pieces need to come together in order to create something that produces some effect on the world. Yeah, one thing I just, I feel funny about is like, I feel really grateful for this teenage life. And I feel like it's a really, really special space. And I just don't want it to sound at all like I think it's better than school or something. I think school is like the hardest. I, I'm remote teaching right now. And it's like a constant process of vacillating between enabling choice and making sure everyone's getting everything. Like, And also, like, I just think constraints really make a big difference. And so it's it's like a useful comparison to think with. But it's also like I one that I acknowledge is like very unfair, too. So I just I'm not Molly. I'm not. That. I'm not worried. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel worried about that. Um, okay. I, I mean, at cool. least from my perspective, like I think if everybody was doing amazing work within like the walls of K twelve schools and academic courses, 
I would feel differently, but I feel like we're, we just are nowhere near bumping up against the limits of what we can do. And so looking to other spaces as inspiration, not as comparison, like it's not apples to apples, but like, what are some of the qualities that made this teenage life work? And it, which of those qualities, clearly not all of them, can we like import into our core classrooms and how might we adapt them given like the concerns we have around shared experiences and shared content? Like I, that just seems like the right question to ask, not an annoying one. Thank you, Sarah. There is a ceiling, but we're so far from bumping against it <laughs> that we really don't need to worry. We're not there. <laughs> I want to see if Olivia and Molly wanted to add anything. I was just thinking about how interesting it is uh, to kind of peek behind the curtains on the student side of things. And uh, yeah, it's been really enjoyable talking to all of you. Yeah, I definitely agree. I don't I don't think I really have anything else to add, but I, I thought this was a great conversation. The one thing I want to add is that I don't think I ever in my life until this teenage life really had the opportunity to work with young people truly as like my teachers and my collaborators. And like I depend on them. And it's it's like somewhat vulnerable in some ways in the sense that like I, I work really hard and invest a lot of time without any funding to make this thing that I really care about. And it depends on this team of of young people. And I think like really believing in young people means doing that. And I feel so grateful to have that opportunity. And I hope all educators get to have that opportunity in whatever capacity they're in. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and produced by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. If you want to check out the work of our panelists, check out the links in our show notes. Thanks for listening.